everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 44, What to Do with a Silver Medal. Hello, Big Chillians. Welcome back to The Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie and Sam. Boys, how's it going? Yeah, pretty well. I'm the I'm the odd one out this week because uh, the two of you are making real estate moves, and I'm just saying where I am. I mean, Sam, congratulations, you moved this week, and Frank, congratulations, it seems like you bought a house. Maybe we'll see. <laughs> so far, so good. But uh, yeah, hopefully everything works out, and we can, you know. I did like where I was living, but when the landlords turn around and say, get out in two months for selling, you kind of are shit out of luck. So yeah, but yeah we got a cool place. So excited. Yeah. So I've gone from Wembley to East London. So I've gone the other side of the world. I, I made the clever decision to move on championship playoff final day, which was obviously really intelligent of me, but I managed to get out just before the roads closed about six minutes before maybe I even got told like, you need to move your van. I'm sorry. So quickly panicked, <laughs> ran everything in. <laughs> so yeah, managed to get out. I had, by those standards, a relatively uneventful weekend. I mean, I did get my first vaccination shot, but then Sam, I know you also got your first vaccination shot last week. So I'm not even unique in that respect. And Frank's already fully vaccinated. So pretty dull, really, in all of this. Yeah, no, I am. <laughs> I'm not bringing anything to the party this week. But then again, you gave us all the uh, stories of your internet and your move last time. So. True. Also, you know, the French Open started this week. And, and even though I'm based in Paris, I decided to not take part because I didn't want to encourage the media pressure that might have and the scrutiny that it might have Ooh. been under. Oh, so now, so Eddie's going right after mental health issues. <laughs> yeah, I am. Attacking them head on. <laughs> Look, and yes. <laughs> that's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> And we can start with that topic. And this is going to be, I know you're going to do it. This is going to be one of my butt topics. And by that, I mean, I don't mean ass. <laughs> you mean your <laughs> asshole? Yeah. Well, maybe we should explain the situation a little bit first before you get into your rant. <laughs> so Naomi Osaka, in the build up to the French Open, she said that she would not be taking part in, in any of the media because she felt like players often are kind of overwhelmed by post-match media coverage, particularly after losses, where you're going through a kind of difficulty and then you have the media jumping on you saying, why did you lose? How did it not go well? So she said coming into the French Open that she would not take part. And then the governing bodies of the Grand Slams in tennis basically said, if you're not going to take part in media, then you're going to be fined and you may even not be allowed to take part in the tournaments themselves. And she is then withdrawn from the French Open, I suppose, in protest of this and trying to show that she doesn't if she's it's either her way or the highway when it comes to this. And I didn't think I didn't think it was under protest. I mean, reading her statement. I mean, she said in her statement that it was due, you know, she didn't want to be a distraction to everyone else out there and that she's going to just not not so much as a I think it was just her kind to show that. She's 
all in on what she's saying is the reasoning for her not wanting to talk to the media. Like she's she's willing to walk the walk and talk the talk in terms of that she is she does think she has a lot of anxiety and issues talking with the media and she's willing to, you know, put her tournament on the line to to back that up. Yeah, but she's also at the same point, right? She is playing a game of chicken now with the tennis authorities because obviously she's one of the women's game's most recognizable figures uh, and one of the most successful female tennis players from the last two or three years and a very popular player. And so now that she has shown she is willing to not participate in tournaments unless she is allowed to not fulfill her sort of expected media duties, she has shown to them, look, you have to bend to what I want or else I just won't take part. So you're right. It is... It's not outright a protest, but it is she is she's pushed her chips all in on the table and now they get to decide whether they're going to call or they're going to fold. And it's a delicate topic because obviously, A, she deserves like any tennis player or athlete. She deserves to be treated with, you know, respect and dignity in post-match press conferences. And there are moments when reporters cross the line in terms of some of the questions they get asked for both men and women, just in terms of. And in tennis in particular, there have been like really famous moments where people have made, um, you know, like Nadal once after he was, he got married and then he lost in Wimbledon and a reporter asked him if they thought that a distraction now of being married was the reason why he'd lost the match. And Nadal was like, I've, I've been with my girlfriend for like nine years and lived together. Like nothing has changed by being, being married. Um, but, you know, there's questions like that, that you do see them get, which, or maybe a bit personal and try and connect if things in your personal life with your performances on the tennis court. And I can get that those are inappropriate. That being said, as any professional athlete and she's tennis isn't unique in this respect. You've, we've seen it, you know, like you've got the Marshawn Lynch. I'm only here so I don't get fined statements and stuff. Athletes need to realize that part of the reason why you get paid huge sums of money to do what you do is because of the media interest and the general interest in what you do. And like, Naomi Osaka cannot make as much money as she does without the media heavily covering what she does. Like the reason I don't get paid at tennis tournaments that I show up to play in is because there's no media there and no one apart from the people taking part cares about what happens. I I fully agree with you on that front. And in fact, a lot of the other tennis athletes also have that similar feeling. A lot of people came out uh, like Nadal came out and said, you know, it's part of our duty as an athlete. We're getting paid a large amount of money. We need to talk to the media. Um, I think Barty came out and said almost something similar. And the issue is, I understand not everyone's comfortable talking to the media. And, you know, I'm sure that she's not the only athlete that can get severe anxiety, is a major introvert, has, you know, issues of with depression and mental health. But that doesn't mean you still can't do the minimum and even say, like, listen, guys, I'd love to answer your questions a little more, but this and that, I just don't feel comfortable. I can give you what I can give you, and that's it. And, and that's fine. And I think the media would accept that, especially in today's age. I, don't, I think it would look very, very poor on a reporter if someone came out and said she had severe issues with kind of being in front, public speaking, and then they berated her. That that person would not last long in the media world anymore. 
So I, I understand her concern, but at the same time, I think you still need to do like exactly like you're saying, part of your job of getting money to be an athlete is to make yourself available to bump up your public image of being said athlete. And I'll say this too. If you want to cut all of your media responsibilities, you better cut all of your sponsorship responsibilities. Yeah. I think that's the point as well. So when she's signing seven-figure deals with Louis Vuitton, seemingly she doesn't have too much anxiety to turn up for a photo shoot. And I know it's very different, and I don't want to sort of, from a, as an outsider, make a judgment about how, when someone's anxiety flares up and when it doesn't. But it does seem in the moments where clearly there is a very fi- strong financial interest, there's no anxiety. Whereas when it's like, well, I don't actually get, I don't directly get paid to talk to the media post-match. I, I, and particularly after I lose is when she really doesn't want to do it right. Then that just seems to be very much using the kind of mental health argument sort of as a shield to have. Mm. And Sam and I were speaking about it before we recorded the podcast. It's, it's dangerous to, to be critical and call out someone else's kind of using it as an excuse. But part of me also worries that using mental health to kind of get what you want in these kind of situations for people who are genuinely, and she may be genuinely, but for people out there who are really genuinely struggling with crippling mental health issues and anxiety and depression, you're kind of making light of things that can really stop people from getting out into the world and living a normal life because she fundamentally seems capable of doing most things normally. It's just that maybe she doesn't like speaking in public or, you know, whatever these situations are, but it's a, it's such a delicate topic, but it, it just doesn't, it rubs me the wrong way. I have to, I have to admit. And I'll also say this yeah. other point. She would not have withdrawn from any other Grand Slam. She is not a particularly good clay court player. She had next to no chance of actually winning in Roland Garros. If this had been the U.S. Open or the Australian Open, where she would have been one of the favorites to win, I would say there's no chance she would have withdrawn. Yeah. Because when she... um. Uh, said the announcement of like I'm withdrawing from the French Open she said that she's going to take some time out of tennis and she wants to come back and work with the tour and the players and the staff to kind of make it more I guess accessible for people that may have mental health issues or any sort of issues surrounding it but it felt with Osaka like the just saying I'm 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 not speaking to the media it felt kind of very sudden and it made me feel like, was that not going on beforehand, this kind of working with them, working internally? It almost just makes it feel like she had a, she made a very like unilateral decision. Whereas if she had done it maybe with other tennis players and they raised it up as more of like a collective bargaining thing that there's media pressure, we need to reform things. But it just feels like she took very unilateral action and then withdrew and then says she's going to work with the tour to try and sort it. I don't know. It just struck me as a bit weird and sudden in a way. Look, it's really easy to be a tennis player who doesn't come under that much media scrutiny. The, mo- the vast majority of the tour, men's and women's game, don't come under that much media scrutiny. All it, like Even as a high-ranking player, she could just take a lower profile in everything else that she does. And as a result of that, her press conferences would have fewer people attending them and the nature of the questions that she would get would be maybe slightly less invasive. But again, it's kind of feels a little bit like wanting to have your cake and eat it too a bit in that she wants to be able to have all these major sponsorship deals and she wants to be able to this to be this because too, right? She wants to be a figure within the tennis game that uh, 
you know, affects social change. Like that's obvious. Those are issues that are important to her. She's spoken very publicly about those. And again, I'm not telling her to like shut up and serve, but it does feel a little bit like too, like, okay, when it's just when this doesn't suit you and look, we, this is the thing I'd love to turn up to my job and the bits of my job. I do not like tell my boss, Hey, is there a way I can stop doing all these bits that I don't really enjoy and just do the bits I really enjoy? Cause it might, I, I'd like, I'd look forward to work a lot more and work would be a lot more enjoyable and I'd be less stressed. And my boss would say, Hey, we can stop you from doing all those bits you don't enjoy. It's just going to mean you don't have your job anymore. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and that's, that's where the walking the fine line with the mental health issues becomes a very tricky thing to navigate because speaking to what you're saying about how it seems like she just doesn't want to do the certain bits. It had originally come out, her sister posted on Reddit saying that the reason she didn't want to talk to the media was because she was already getting negative comments about her performance on clay. So when you, and then that was obviously deleted off of Reddit. But when you look at it at that respect, it seems as if she doesn't want to talk to the media, like you're saying in this situation, because she is going to get criticized for her inability to be successful on clay. And that serves that bigger question. As an athlete, are you obligated to be able to be criticized and respond to the criticism? Or is that an unfair part of being an athlete and people need to keep that in mind when talking to athletes? You know, that's and it and comes it's like what you're saying, you know, in, in certain jobs, you would just be fired for it. You know, like even if you had even if you said, hey, listen, I'm an introvert and I get very nervous and it can't speak during my presentations at work. They'll say, I'm sorry, but then this work isn't for yeah. you. Yeah. Get a new job. Yeah. It comes with the territory. It comes with the territory of your role, though. Like these these press conferences are mandatory. You get training, you get everything as a player, especially one that becomes so successful and in the media eye to deal with these things as well. And I actually think it was when you were talking about the kind of variable nature of it, it, for me, it's weird to say like, I'm not speaking to the media, but then you speak to fans knowing that that's going to get media attention, you doing that exact thing. So it seems a little bit strange to almost induce more media attention by criticizing the media or going against them. But for me, I mean, she's got things are mandatory. She's got more, she's got more media attention by doing this than she would have ever done by just playing the tournament and going to press conferences. Like if, if, if what she wanted to do is, I mean, imagine how hyped in the future, her her post-match press conference is going to be, because now it's going to be like, is she going to turn up? Is she not? Like how long is she going to stay for? Is she going to, is she going to do the Marshall Lynch? Yeah. She's going to do the Marshall Lynch and just say, I'm I'm here so I don't get fined. Like, What's going to happen? And so now all these people who before would have been like, I'm not going to go to the Osaka press conference. I'm going to go to the Djokovic press conference. He's way more interesting. And now it's like, I'm going to go to the Osaka press conference because something huge might happen. And then I'm going to want to ask her about like, are you happy to be here? Like there's going to be a whole host of questions now not related to tennis that she is going to yeah. be asked on a consistent basis because she's going to have to address them. And yeah. and look, it's you also, this is just like you can, Dominic team lost yesterday he was one of the favorites to win the tournament he's someone who's made the french open final in the past he's one of the better clay court players in the world he was two sets up and blew it against a player you would never expect him to lose against and he sat in his press conference and answered difficult questions trying to explain why he had put in such a disappointing performance and 
that must be uncomfortable. And I'm sure the last place in the world you want to be after an incredibly disappointing loss is sitting in front of a bunch of reporters explaining to them why you lost. Because there's no good explanation most of the time. Like, unless you were injured or unless something really bad happened, they're probably just like, I don't know, I didn't play well. I didn't do it on purpose. Just, you know, when I tried to hit my forehand, it didn't go the way I wanted it to go. Like, I can get why as a player, it's an, it's a frustrating experience, but people are interested in it. And that's why you get paid money. Keeping on the French Open and a little more of a lighter topic, how would you feel if you were still competing on the world stage and someone had already put a statue of you outside that stadium that you compete at? Is that something you would appreciate, not appreciate, feel very awkward about? How are we feeling on that one? I would be honored, but if I had any say in it, I would say, can you please wait until I retire? Because I would feel awkward about it to like turn up and like your own statue is outside. Equally, part of me be like, I guess this means I'm supposed to be retiring pretty soon. Like, like you, you're not going to do this for me when I'm 23. Like, this is a sign that you think I've not got too long left. So this is like towards the end of my career recognition. But yeah, we're, you were obviously referring to the Nadal statue, which it's art. It's a cool statue. It's an artistic interpretation, but I actually think it's pretty nice. Like, I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, I think it's. I'd be pleased with the statue itself, but yeah, I would have asked them to wait until I. To me, it's a little bit like the Andy Murray getting knighted while he was still competing, and the fact that like, and look what Dad did to him. (laughs) But the fact that like scoreboards and things technically should be all saying reading like Sir Andy Murray, right? And like the umpire should be saying Sir Andy Murray, and he's obviously allowed them to not go through all of that pomp and circumstance, but equally more difficult one to say in terms of the queen honoring you to say like, Hey, I'm very honored, but could you maybe wait for five years? But I think it would be a similar, (laughs) similar situation where it'd be like, can we just do this when I retire? So that some of the awkwardness is out of the way. I don't know. I, I, I think it would just be honoring and humbling just to have it and knowing that you just turn up and like, you've, you've already been like honored and you're a complete hero and you're a complete legend when it comes to the French Open and what you do after that, unless you do something so cataclysmically bad that they have to take down the statue again. I, I don't another, think it got That's another but, risk. That's another <laughs> like, risk. Obviously, if you go over and like push the umpire stand over, like, yeah, you might want to reconsider the statue. Well, I would have gone, gone worse than that, Sam. It's the potential that takes, gets your statue taken down. <laughs> but now I'll just, I'll come out on record then. If, you, if you're fine with this, Sam, if we reach, I say if, when, when we reach 100,000 listeners per episode, I'm going to have a statue of myself put up behind you just to honor my contribution to this podcast. And, and I'll, I'll happily look at myself while we talk, but then on the same time, you're just going to have to put up with the fact that there's a statue of me in your house. Okay. Would we not have kind of one around each other? So like you would have Frank behind you, Frank would have me behind you. So we've just no. got this weird kind of like six no. person. No, it's just the... you. Just you. Yeah. You don't you don't want me behind you, Eddie? <laughs> <laughs> Sam might, but I'll I'll pass. <laughs> it was so it was so if, obvious. It was if, so lazy. If a sta- if there's a statue of you behind Sam, I want it to be the bust of exactly what we see right now, where it's just like your head and a microphone yeah. <laughs> with a baseball cap yeah, on. No, 100%. <laughs> it will be, and I'll get the same guy who did the Nadal statue. So it will be like Pete. No, you're getting Pete. the guy. Oh, who no, you're getting the Ronaldo. You're getting the Ronaldo. Maybe I'll just buy the Ronaldo statue and stick a microphone in front of it. And it would, like, it would look just as much like me as it looks like Ronaldo. 
that guy's got to be at a discount now. We can get yeah. him cheap. Yeah. Try to get him as a guest. And obviously, the path to the French Open, and yet another potential French Open victory for Nadal just got a little bit easier with team going out. So, what are what are Nadal's current odds? He was even money before the port- tournament started, and slightly odds on in places. That still seems like really good value. Look, every year, but it's going to happen. There'll be a point where Frank and I had this happen. conversation for at least six years. Where every year, I mean, the shortest I've ever seen him is is like maybe eight to thirteen at the start of a tournament when he's really in form. Now the question marks a little bit are always like, so he's four to five. Zverev is eleven to one, and then ooh, that's value. Every, I mean, Zverev's a good clay court player, so I, you'd have to. If I were going to take on Nadal, Zverev would be the one I would say at eleven to one that would interest me. Everyone else is thirty three to one or bigger. I mean, Federer is 66 to 1. That's just never going to happen. That's crazy. How many how many French Opens do you think Nadal will win? You know, let's say including this one. How many more do you think he's going to win? So if I, I think it'd be either like if I, if, I set, if I set the over under at two and a half more. Uh, I would have set three and a half. I would have. Oh. Including this tough. one. So I guess. Yeah. I guess I'm saying three more after this. Three more after this one yeah, would put him. So 15. I say he's winning four. How old? He is 34. So 37, he tur- 38, he, he, he turns. I would definitely take the over on that. He turns 35 uh, in two days. Because I think what you might see happen is him just severely decrease his tournaments. And kind of just focus on the French Open. The, fe- the Federer move, you know, yeah. like Federer. Yep. It's unusual for Federer. And why not? Now, the thing that would go against that. The only thing I will say is like clay game is such a physical game. Like long rallies, your explosiveness and your athleticism contributes a lot to your ability to play on the surface. So if he really does start to deteriorate physically, it's going to be tough for him to compete against younger players. But you make him sound like a robot. He deteriorates <laughs> physically. Oh, he's, his, parts, his parts just yeah, start just falling like off. Losing lose, limbs. Lose just mid-match. <laughs> I mean, he's a knee, you know, he's had knee problems over the course. You know, the thing is, he's almost like bigger physically now than he was. I mean, he's in very good physical shape from, you know, just appearance. Oh, just hear that pitch on Eddie's voice when he said that. He's, he's looking big. <laughs> But uh, no, I I think I would feel confident about two more. I wouldn't feel I'd feel I feel like it'd be a big risk to to take more than that. But that's interesting when you put it like that because say okay, he's four to five to win this one. So let's just say he does. You're saying he's only got one more French Open in it. Yeah, which he would probably be six to four at the start of the tournament next year. So let's say you probably even. <laughs> let's say you can get. Let's be generous and say you could get three to one odds right now on him winning this year and next year. It has to be this year and next year. I can't see a world in which he loses either of these years, but then comes back to win the following year. Oh, I do. If he wins this year and loses next year, then he's going to say, I just want to go out winning. Oh, no, no. I'll come back to win it. (laughs) I, I think he'll come back, but winning, like, I feel like a little bit of this, like, the moment he starts losing 
because he's already his clay court record, which is exceptional no matter where he plays. He is losing more and more clay court games at other venues. And I just feel like part of it's got to be an air of invincibility. Like the mental block on playing Nadal at the French Open must be huge. Because even if you win the first set, I mean, which people don't typically do, but say hypothetically, even if you're two sets up against him, part of your mind has got to be thinking, people don't beat this guy. So sooner or later, he's going to mount a comeback. And in his mind, that's got to help too, because he's just going to think, nobody beats me here. Like, this is, I'm, I know I'm going to win. I guess here's, here's a better question. What happens last? Tom Brady makes it to a Super Bowl? Or Nadal wins a French Open? Nadal. That's a good question. I say Nadal. I can see Nadal winning five years from now. Because the risk is here. You've got money in the bank, right? Because technically you're winning with Tom Brady right now. Like if Nadal never wins again, you win this bet because Brady played in the Super Bowl this year. I'll go Nadal. I think Nadal. I just think with Brady, there's too many variants. There's too many teams. Whereas Nadal, like Frank said, could like going to stasis for a year and then just wheel himself out for the French stasis. Open. Dude, Walt Disney, <laughs> like, he's going to put himself in a... Yeah, <laughs> freeze himself? He and... basically just... He just freezes himself with the trophy and then they just like... What a move that him out. Be. He gets to like 36 and he's like, I'm going to freeze myself now until like uh, technology is able to fix my knees and then I'm going to come back and dominate the French Open in like 20... Like 2150. This is my new I love goal. the idea I thought you were going to say... I thought you were going to say he's going to bash people. He's going to say, I'm going to wait until there's a worthy challenger. Oh, even better. Unfreeze me when there's someone worth my time. Yeah. Yeah. Like Mortal Kombat or something. The arrogance of it. I love the idea of like a 50-year window between his French Mm. Open wins. Yeah, and, and he's, they freeze him like the statue. Uh, That's his freeze. They replace the, the statue they, pose. They take the statue away. Yeah, and, and then they put like they put a tennis racket up there. And when a worthy opponent is ready, they'll be able to take the racket like, out like Excalibur. Okay. Well, like Excalibur. <laughs> well, so whoever holds the tennis racket, yeah. <laughs> suddenly you just see this like stasis tube open, and this Nadal just falls out like it must be time. Babola would be. Delighted with that kind of sponsorship opportunity, but uh, but yeah, now make a great commercial. That's not actually it's a pretty good commercial idea, but (laughs) it's not actually not a bad one. (laughs) Anyone listening to this, if we see this commercial up here, we are suing you. But the you know what? Let's why don't we make it and see if we can pitch it. (laughs) We can also do. The budget, the budget value of all. (laughs) No, you do, you do two commercials in one. So we do one. We either try to pitch it to like Nadal to get like Nike or Babylon or someone on board, or we're pitching it to like iPhone. You know when they do those commercials and they're like made on iPhone twelve. Yeah. So, so, so we're like pitch film it like where it's the reverse where normally people like I can't believe they made that on an iPhone. I'd be like, yeah, we can totally tell they made that on an iPhone. (laughs) That looks a hundred percent. Three guys made that on a phone. I'm just surprised there was an iPhone. It looks like an iPhone 3GS. Or we film it on like a Samsung and then we send it to iPhone and then they can show how bad it is. Oh, oh, nice. Nice. But you know, um, now from complaining about, I'm going to shift us on a little bit onto back the, well, onto European football, just to have another mini rant in a reaction to a little bit to both even though we already discussed the Europa League, but both finals. I am tired 
of players on losing teams having the medal, and this applies to multiple sports, but you see it, it's particularly prevalent in football, having the medal put around their necks and instantly taking it off when they have the runners-up medal. You need to have more respect for the tournament that you're playing in and the achievement that your team and you have had in making it to a Champions League final, even if they're disappointed by losing, but keeping that medal on your neck until if you want to get into your changing rooms and take it off. But while you're still in public, you keep that on your neck. If I were a manager, I would absolutely tell my players that. But I find it, and you see players do it. I mean, you had Manchester United players taking it off their necks yeah. in the Europa League final. Players who've never won anything. Like, this is the bit, this is the crowning achievement of your career so far. And you've been like, fuck <laughs> this. Like, I'm, not, I'm not keeping anything on my neck until I win it. It's like, you might not win anything. Like, this might be the only time anyone puts a medal around your neck. So you should probably treasure this moment until something better has come along. But it really, really bothers me. Yeah. Well, what I, if they go all in, Eddie, and they take it off and then just toss it? I'd have just more. launch it. I, I would rather a player says, I'm not even going up. I don't want the medal. Okay. If, if a player pulled that, I would still, if I were his manager or something, I'd take him aside and go, you're going to go up and you're going to regret this if you don't get that medal. But if a player just said, I only take winner's medals, <laughs> that's it. What if they like swatted it out of the guy's hand when he was no, trying to No, because that would be outright disrespectful. <laughs> but if, if someone just said like, nope, not even taking part, it's gold or nothing for me. Like I'm not, even, I'm not getting on the podium. I don't care about the podium. It's, it's winner takes it all. But the fact that the, and you know, I'm sure that 15 years from now, I'll be watching some video of, you know, Harry Maguire showing me his trophy cabinet and he's going to proudly have, this is that time, this is my Europa League uh, runners up medal. It was a great run, really enjoyed the campaign. Boys were amazing. Loved every moment of it. Slightly disappointed we couldn't win, but still incredible. It's like, oh yeah, it was so incredible. You took it off two and a half seconds after someone put it around your neck. I also just think it's a little disrespectful to the opposition as well. I don't know. There's always this kind of arrogant feel of like, no, this was, I should have been, I should have been the winner. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, yeah. well, no, you were, you were either outplayed or obviously anything can happen over 90 minutes. But it comes to me as like, just, it's an occasion. It's an institution. You respect the other team by accepting your part in the final as well, whether that be a winner or a runner up. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. I know that Rashford had a lot of attention because he did it, like, basically, it didn't even, like, touch his neck before it was off. So I know Rashford Wonder Boy Rashford attention. did it? Yeah. Even... <laughs> oh, that's, 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 that disappoints me. Every Manchester United player Every did, Man you played. With the exception of Cavani, who, <laughs> who had it put So around. humble, Cavani. <laughs> <He> <laughs> who like... said a racial slur and left it on. <laughs> He's so happy a black guy didn't put this around my neck, but he he uh, he had it around his neck, and then he like patted it in the kind of moment as if he was actually sort of treasuring the moment of having been given it. So he got a lot of he got a little bit of credit for for doing that as that is a gesture. But again, Cavani, and then he's going to get, and then he's getting replaced in a month. <laughs> but Cavani is of the Manchester United. Now they're you know you've got Paul Pogba who's won a World Cup, but Cavani would fall into the category of some of the you know the most trophies of any player playing for Manchester United right now. So again, yeah. if if Cavani is treasuring it when he's actually won things, it's crazy to have players who haven't just being like, "Oh, this this silver piece of shit." Yeah, and I I fully agree with what Sam said. It's not only respect for 
the tournament, whatever you're playing in, but also the respect for the, your team, like the team that beat you. You know, they beat you, whether they were the better team overall that day they were, and you should respect the fact that they beat you. Be humble. Yeah, you're disappointed, but part of it is hopefully you feel like, well, these, this team had to play well to beat us. Like even if we think we let yeah. ourselves down or we may even kind of beat ourselves or we think we're the better team, the other teams achieve something in this process. And if I have respect for them and respect for the competition I'm trying to take part in, then acknowledging their achievement is a nice gesture. And I think you're yeah. right, Sam. That extends to not ripping your runners-up medal off your neck. Yeah, and I also think that I like the mentality of like, I'm going to watch them savor it because I don't want to feel like this again either. You almost use it as like an exercise of like, wow, being a runner-up, getting a runner-up medal, having the runner-up medal on, watching someone else lift the trophy. It's like, damn, that sucked. I'm not going to you know drive you to do better next time or to go that extra step or not have De Gea miss a penalty or something like that. Yeah, Maybe De Gea is going to work on his penalties for a year now. But yeah, and so the Champions League final, kind of a disappointing affair. Not the most thrilling Champions League final ever. You know, congratulations to Chelsea. They played well. I think Manchester City were disappointing, but in part because Chelsea played well enough to stop them from playing. The big storyline was effectively the formation and team selection that Pep Guardiola had, deciding not to play either Rodri or Fernandinho as defensive or holding midfielders and then also not playing an actual forward just kind of doing the thing city have tons of and just playing a million attacking gifted midfielders under the height of five foot ten but and it kind of backfired they didn't create a lot of chances chelsea were fundamentally the better team on the day i do think some of the criticism that has been leveled at guardiola for over tinkering like you can't give him you can't call him a genius like 51 weeks of the year for the way he prepares his side and the changes that he makes and the way that he's able to put a great team out there and then if you if it backfires once suddenly it's like well why do you tinker so much it's like well his tinkering is the reason why you all think he's amazing sometimes it's not going to work yeah it it was weird to see kind of they haven't really played two really wide people for a lot of the season so when they have Sterling and Mares out you could tell it wasn't as effective, but simultaneously the lack of the midfielders, you could see how easy it was for like Mason Mount to be picking out forward passes. Like he had so much space and opportunity to work the ball. I He, he got his tactics wrong, but I, I agree with you. It doesn't mean he's a bad manager or over tinkering or something like that. That is the genius of what he is. But yeah, like it's a shit super cup. <laughs> when you look at, you know, when you had these finals, you had Man City, Chelsea, Man U, Villarreal, and you had the potential for like a Manchester derby in the Super Cup and things like that. And now you've got Chelsea, Villarreal. It doesn't, um, it doesn't paint the best picture of European football, but you know what? They won it kind of fair yeah. and square. So. Well, Mason Mount so has what... claimed that Chelsea are the best team in the world. Genuinely, that's what he said. Well, well, they didn't compete for the league, so they're not a big club. <laughs> no that's a dig i so, don't know eddie my, they're not my question team. to you eddie is you you said chelsea did a pretty good job of slowing or shutting down city was that all of chelsea or do they owe almost all of it to conte oh almost all play of it. out of his mind he, he's fundamentally he's one unbelievable he's won a team a champions league and a, he's won a team a world cup 
almost yeah. single-handedly. Like the way <laughs> he frees up the other midfielders to basically have no defensive responsibilities and he's just all over the pitch. It's incredible. I mean, he has his limitations, right? So there are plenty of times when he's maybe not the player you want for some specific situations. But when you need him to do the job that he's doing, you could argue he is better at doing what he does than any other footballer is in the world. He's definitely not the best yeah. player in the world, but yeah. he is better at that than anyone else is good at what they do. Yeah, he's incredibly industrious. And I mean, like, Leicester bought him for, what, like 5 million in 2015? And then immediately they go and win the Premier League with him as well. So he was pretty integral in that as well. I like the story when people are like, this is unbelievable. What an unbelievable career transformation from this sort of unheralded, unheralded player who was playing second division French football not that long ago. That within the, he's then won the Premier League with Leicester, won the Champions League with Chelsea, won the won the uh, World, World Cup. Cup with France. That story I like. The storyline I don't need to hear anymore. And I like Mason Mount. He is also an incredible player, but I don't need. Isn't it incredible? Two years ago, Mason Mount was losing the championship playoff final, and now he's winning the Champions League. And it's like he was on loan from Chelsea to Derby, and he's twenty-two <laughs> years old. This is not some this is not some crazy career path. Like, yeah, it's not like a Jamie Vardy story, is it? Where that like there's genuinely a weird meteoric rise with him because it happened late yeah. as well. Like, yeah. Yeah. If he's on loan, you can't be like, well, no, I mean, what a transformation. I, 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 he I, was at Chelsea, and now he's at Chelsea. Yeah. I saw this at least 10 times. That is a like storyline. And the other one I don't need is first American to play in the Champions League final. I don't care. Oh, you do care, Eddie. <laughs> I don't. Because you know the only thing... And, and missed potentially a very important yeah. goal now thank, on. thank god he didn't score because obviously it had no impact on the result anyway but it would have been even more insufferable if he had also scored because not only would people have then been losing their minds about first american to score in a champions league final then they would have been like why didn't he start in the first place that would have been the follow-up to that as well like well he came on and scored and it, why wouldn't you have a player on the field if he could, if he could score he's obviously one of their best 11 players but, and he's, or someone, you do the, or, or you do like the American golden era. And it's like, look, Americans are even scoring in champions. league. look how good the American side is. Yeah. One guy playing against what? Nine, at least nine English people. Oh, and, and I mean, that's the thing, right? We've had a French p- basketball player be an NBA finals MVP. I don't need to hear about the fact that an American has played in a Champions League final. Like, let's put this into the context that a lot of sports are global and that America's a very big country and that their athletes are very good in a lot of sports. Like, part of me, which is some of it was out of the way, but... It doesn't change anything either it's not like now there's been one next season there'll be two or (laughs) next season there'll be three four and then in 30 years time you'll have like new york winning the champions league it's like there's no there's there's no like there's no like escalation from here it's just a nationality of a good player that got signed by a club that won the champions league it's so pointless as a statistic i mean the only interesting one would have been how many English players there were and how that bodes well for the country in the Euros. Like that's an interesting argument to have, but not like a single player just kind of doing it. And the only, the only other talking point, right, in a way, was the, the Rudiger challenge on Kevin De Bruyne, which, again, I don't think changed the match. I think Chelsea would have won anyway. 
obviously the injury that Kevin De Bruyne has suffered is relatively serious. I don't know what implications that has for him playing in the Euros. I think, so what's the I think final might injury? It. So it's a Did he end up breaking a bone? Ice, it's a fractured eye socket. I know broken. It, yeah. Well, fractured or, or orbital. Yeah. So yeah. it's a pretty serious injury. The chances of him being recovered in time to play in the Euros are pretty slim to none. And, and the risks ah, then of... He'll just wear one of those stupid masks that Rudiger was wearing. Exactly. <laughs> if only he had been wearing it. Full circle. <laughs> yeah, Rudiger just says to him, like, I'm going to show you why you need this mask. <laughs> oh, yeah. How are you going to do that? <laughs> yeah. But what do, you, what do you think about it then in terms of a, a challenge or just a pretty brutal obstruction? Because it really so, was. So I'm a bit torn. I think it would be a harsh red card in some respects, right? Because it's not. Now, the thing is, Kevin De Bruyne played the ball to Rudiger's left and then moved to Rudiger's right. And there was no reason for him to move in the direction that he did for any, any other reason than a professional foul and intentional obstruction. So at that, at that moment, it's um, a yellow card just for that, regardless then of the level of impact. The fact that he went with such force and then also used his shoulder and his arm at a kind of dangerous level. And you can't judge something right based on outcome. You can't say, oh, you broke his leg, therefore it's a red card. Because like, serious injuries happen from not you know, un insignificant fouls. But mm -hmm. I think personally that should be a red card. I think if you have that level of disregard for another player's safety it's you know serious foul play and dangerous play and it should be a red card Ooh. do you think he really went that aggressively it didn't seem like it was that aggressive of a move towards De Bruyne I mean you he's very clearly he knows he's only moved in that direction for one reason which is to have Kevin De Bruyne run directly into him he's taken and now okay, he, all he's done is step to his side and it's not his fault in the sense that he's just bigger and stronger and that the impact for De Bruyne is going to be more serious than it is for him. But he has also kind of moved in with his, like he knows the impact is coming and he has moved with his shoulder and his arm. And it's like when in rugby, when someone's preparing for, it's going to be tackled and you can't lead with your elbow. Like you can't know that you're going to be tackled and put your elbow out there so that the sort of the guy attempting to tackle you is, is going to take your elbow in his face. To me, it's almost the same concept. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm a bit torn on it. I'm not saying it's a, 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 it's definitely not a mistake from the referee, but I, 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 I feel like it, it, sh it warrants a red card fundamentally. There's, there's kind of an intent in there, like a VAR style review where it's like checking for possible red card and you could see validity in it. I, but I, I actually agree with you on the intent. Like, we all know that when you're chasing a game or say like 85th minute, you're 1-0 and you do a very obvious foul to usually you'll still like soften your body deliberately knowing what you're doing is obstruction. You don't like harden up and go to like the hardest parts of your body knowing that that contact is going to be. So the way you put it, I, I can kind of see the intent and I think that's a problem. Uh, but I think it would have been a very, very crazy harsh red card. Uh, if it was given. I mean, it's it's clearly a yellow because obviously it's deliberate, but I do think it might be one of those scenarios where like VAR checking, that may have personally been a good style of VAR review. Kind what, of but 
what it is basically is it's like if you could have a sin bin or a penalty box for hockey fans, if you could have that concept, if you could have like a five or 10 minute sin bin, that's the kind of foul it is. It's like a yellow card and a half. That's sort of where I feel like it is. So if, if, it, if he'd sent him off, it would have been controversial. And the huge talking point would have been how it was a harsh red card, but then by not giving a red card. And it hasn't been some huge debate after the match. And I think in part because Chelsea were the better team and were fairly comfortable. And I don't think it had any impact on the outcome. So I think that is part of the reason why it's not got that too much attention. But obviously for Belgium, that's a massive loss. Yeah, proper playmaker. I actually, I, I think it's a really interesting idea why football hasn't adopted Simbin. I think it would just get rid of all of these stupid yellow cards as well, like people kicking the ball away and stuff like that. If if a yellow card carried like five minutes off the pitch or something, you're oh, not every, get every those, yellow like, card. Every yellow card. <laughs> like say five say five minutes off the pitch. <laughs> it would it would almost get rid of every single stupid foul because people would really think carefully because know, you can't just do these like time wasting things as Sam. a goalkeeper. Football footballers are idiots. Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't get rid of stupid fouls. You, but you would immediately get rid of time wasting, right? Because a keeper can't time waste and then be off for five minutes. Like it would immediately get rid of it. So I, I don't disagree with like yellow card and five minutes off. I, I maybe the, the more match, we unpack it, the, the match fixing would go through the roof. Imagine how easy would <laughs> you have a referee be like, yeah, they're down to four players. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then you find out the refs had 10k on it just yeah, because I mean, you keep yellow guarding them <laughs> oh i actually have a non-sport topic which i have one sport topic we'll have to return to but which will connect a little bit to my non-sport topic which not only links into our recent discussions about whether or not the tokyo olympics are going to go ahead but it also links into our chicken sandwich war because I was, I was scanning through Uber wow. Eats the other day when I was trying to decide what to order. And I noticed that like the, the banner where they promote, you know, like what's new or what's out was a McDonald's banner, which is kind of unusual because they don't usually have new products to push. But they have released two new items, which were obviously linked, I suppose, based on the theme to the Tokyo Olympics. And okay, they, okay. I like this already. I like this. They have a chicken wrap that has come out, and they have a super. That is so Olympics and funny. Wow! <laughs> and they they have a fish burger that's also come out. Wow! What? Why are these linked? I will because tell when you. you think Olympics, you think no, 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 burger because don't, of the rings. No, no, <laughs> don't think Olympics. Think host, I know. Think host country Tokyo. Now, the reason why, there's only one reason why this becomes in any way remotely Japanese. And that is because the fish burger is a fish wasabi burger. And because, okay, so it's not made of whale. And because <laughs> it's not the, like a whale burger. The chicken wrap is a McWrap Tokyo and chicken wasabi wrap. So it is that a, one actually, sure. Sam, is made by made with dog. Yeah. Whoa, oh, okay. whoa, whoa. And, and apparently Japan whoa, only has whoa. wasabi as a flavor. Whoa. That's, that's a different type of Asian, Frank. But <laughs> 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 <That is laughs> let's see if that survives the edit. 
but uh, <laughs> please, please if you... let it. I, I want to see. I want to see his world crumble. <laughs> Mine or or his? Because I think we could no, both be out with that yours. one. Um, yeah, oh, we dear. might both not survive yeah. that one. <laughs> this will just be Sam's big chill podcast next week. But uh, just inking everywhere to try and pull just me randomly talking about Squir- NH- squirting NHL. all over the place. But. Um, <laughs> You could be, you could be right, like. So wait, wait, recap now. Where are we? Sam squirts takes, <laughs> like as if it's like sports takes, but it's just a squirt instead. Anyway, the um, so the the, the yeah, give it a pause. No, no, because can... I'm I'm gonna make myself not have it edited out. So the uh, chicken wrap, the ingredients are just like looks like a normal tortilla wrap, uh, fried chicken, nothing special about that, salad, and then. Uh, sauce, a cheese sauce with wasabi. That's it. That is the. Say it again. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> where have you been? <laughs> I had a, had a, my my computer crashed. I had to turn the brightness it's, back up. <laughs> okay, imagine. I won't even bother. Imagine a basic chicken wrap, and then just add in a cheese sauce with wasabi. That's what that I is. don't get why your computer screen crashing affected your hearing. Because <laughs> no. I had to turn the brightness up and I couldn't click on it. So I was trying to click no, on the brightness still, and I wasn't, paying, I wasn't not, paying attention. That's still not audible. <laughs> he can't multitask. I get that. I cannot. I am not a mise en placer. Yeah. And then, uh, and then the fish burger is fried fish, um, uh, fried onions, Fondue cheese sauce and another uh, wasabi sauce on top of that. Uh, I don't Two like sauces. the idea of cheese with fish. <laughs> and it's it is like American cheese slices. That's what you got. Yeah, I don't like that. Oh, re- idea. Just really Japanesing it there with the American cheese slices. So basically, it just looks like a McChicken looks, replaced with the yeah. fish. Yes, it looks like a load of peas on top. <laughs> the wrap, the wrap looks exactly like a normal chicken wrap. The only reason you could tell it's in any way wasabi themed is because it has this like green sauce in it. But fundamentally, wait, it just looks like these. It. And these are worldwide, or are they just in Japan or in America? Like, what's the? Well, it's obviously well, not no, just obviously, in Japan. You dumbass. <laughs> They're obviously in Paris. It came up on his Uber Eats. Delivery <laughs> oh, fee. Oh, shit, yeah. $17,000. <laughs> delivery, estimated delivery time. Two weeks from now. Is, is, is anyone listening oh, to why is this, right now? Why is this so cold? <laughs> like, oh, dear. You can imagine tricking your driver as he goes like across <laughs> russia and things like that yeah they've opened up that new silk road right it's allowed them to do uber eats from <laughs> from japan um a part of me is tempted to buy one of these to try it i'm not a huge wasabi fan is part of the issue here uh i can't imagine it's very hot though because french people you don't, don't, don't want to run the risk but also french of... people don't really like hot or spicy food they're pretty bland people yeah, for the most part exactly so it's probably actually an avocado that they say is wasabi. Probably. Oh. It's like guacamole. There, I mean, there's no way it's like real wasabi, right? Like there's there's no chance no. of that. So it will be like a wasabi. It's just guacamole. Yeah. But uh, the chicken wrap, I could maybe give a go. I've never had like a filet of fish or anything. So I can't 
it would be a big leap for me to not only go for this wasabi themed McDonald's like burger, but to also have that be a fish burger from McDonald's for the first time. Which, well, you actually you have a friend now in Paris who enjoys McDonald's, so oh maybe we go to have an opportunity to go. <laughs> okay, I'll see if I can convince him. We can, or maybe I just have him over and I Uber Eats order for us, and I and I just tell him I'm getting us McDonald's, and then just give him that. <laughs> just hope for the best. If you, I was gonna say, if you tell him you're getting McDonald's and you give him a Japanese style fish sandwich. <laughs> He might, he might break your window <laughs> because he wants he wants definitely like a Big Mac or a quarter pounder, and he wants McNuggets. Wow, do you know what they call a quarter pounder with cheese here? <laughs> wow, well, do you know what I'll commit between now and say. Not next episode because I'm not doing it in the next couple of days, but now and between now and in the, within the next two or three episodes, I will try one of these items. Live? No, no, I don't think anyone wants to watch or listen <laughs> to me eat. <laughs> Surprisingly enough, that's. I know this could bring up this whole mukbang thing I spoke to you guys about before. Then that old that descent. <laughs> Wait, are you really going to do this thing? The what was did you say? Mukbang. We we had this exact discussion. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. What has happened to both of us? Have we just collapsed as entities over the last twenty minutes? I thought you said look bang. No, this is. (laughs) Oh man, you know when we had uh, Derek Ray on the podcast and he said that he got his break in hospital radio. I feel like I'm taking part in hospital radio, but where it's the patients (laughs) that I'm speaking with. Like, uh, oh, uh, this this week, my co-hosts are Frank. He's got early onset dementia. And Sam, because he's incontinent. Let's go. Why am I incontinent? I don't know. I, had, I didn't want you to both have dementia. It, so. looks, it looks like it. <laughs> Look puffy. Just shits all over the walls behind you. How look, do you look incontinent? Oh, you, you do. Bloated. <laughs> also, Sam, you're wearing a nappy. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's beside the point. <laughs> oh, that's a diaper, Frank. So from there, I will. Need to... I'll yeah, bring actually, us... I didn't know that was a diaper. Good. <laughs> yeah, I'll bring us back onto sports. And uh, obviously, we discussed in the past the fact that the Tokyo, there's growing pressure on the... Tokyo Olympics to be postponed or canceled. Uh, Copa America also is dealing with similar pressures, which was it starts in 12 days, I think, from time of recording. It was supposed to take place in Argentina. First time in the history it was going to have co-hosts. It was Argentina and Colombia. They have already they had already decided that it would not take place in Colombia as a result of there, there goes that. <laughs> as a result of uh, uh, social and political protests that are going on in the country at the time. And Argentina were still expected to host it, but because of the rising number of COVID cases in Argentina, they have now decided that Argentina will not be hosting either. Sam, have they decided now that uh, is Chile going it's to going host? It's going to Brazil. It's going to Brazil. I thought it was Brazil. 
that's going to Brazil, which doesn't make sense because I'm pretty sure Brazil is one of the worst hit COVID countries and continues to be. So it's like, this country is not doing very well with COVID. So how about we give it to the other country that's not yeah, doing very well Bolsonaro's with COVID? Bolsonaro's there. I don't even believe him in COVID, so it's fine. Um, that's true. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> Rio has better infrastructure because of the Olympics. Maybe they have the ability to have a few stadiums right there that they can kind of keep mm. the players at and kind of I think all of that infrastructure maybe. has fallen apart since the Olympics but yeah. <laughs> well, pretty it was, sure it was never it was never really built completely anyway yeah but no I mean that would be the other issue Brazil is a obviously a huge country and those cities are separated by you know quite a that was one of the issues when even when Brazil hosted the World Cup a few years ago and like England were taking or were playing their matches in a part of Brazil that had a radically different climate to where some of their other matches were going to be played were going to be played so no i don't think from a logistics standpoint brazil has will solve any problems i actually think this is where the united states has kind of missed a trick because if i was the us i would have if you're going to reopening and stuff why not just say hey why don't you come to texas and play the entire copa america in texas like between houston dallas and you know somewhere else you could have probably played almost all of the matches in high level stadiums that would have been my move that would have been quite cool there's always the the us is always one of those like rough they're always going to be ready to host right the infrastructure is always there the stadia are always there they always say it about like england and football as well is that if there was ever a problem with a world cup like qatar or russia or something like that just give it to england because everything's ready it's a pretty small country it's very easy to get around um but yeah, that, I think that'd be a good idea to kind of keep it in one area. Although it must be impossible to keep the pitch, like <laughs> the ground stuff working on that pitch. It's like playing every day. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, it's if uh, if this Copa America doesn't go ahead, which I, I think they're you know Luis Suarez, for example, came out and said that he didn't think that the human life a little bit similar in a way to the Osaka comments uh, relating to the Tokyo Olympics that human life should be placed above sporting priorities. But it would be really, really disappointing, you'd have to say, for countries like Australia and Qatar to miss out on the thrill of the Copa America. So you look puzzled, Frank, but those two countries are actually taking part in the Copa America this year. <laughs> Just that was that was what I was hinting at. I love all of Australia's like random inclusions and things. Like they, They're part of Eurovision as well. They're now part of Copper America. They just they love, oh, a little, not, they love a little gimmick. Thank God we have managed to avoid the Euro, Eurovision topic. You, you're just still you, you're just still bitter about the winners last year. You just can't can't talk about it yet. Every year, no, I'm haunted since it's since Eurovision '97. I've just never been able to watch it again. When you were booed off the stage, yeah. <laughs> little known fact about Eddie: he auditioned in Eurovision '1997. Nul point for Moldova. So, uh, those are my topics for the week. <laughs> what do you two have? <laughs> I've got nothing. It's been a pretty lame Memorial Day weekend for me. So, all right. Well, I guess in that case, I'll talk to you boys later. See ya. Cheerio.